welcome to Climate Consulting. Today's guest is Joe Miles. Joe is an executive coach and founder of Master Your Transition, her coaching and consulting business. Drawing upon two decades of management consulting and coaching experience, Joe empowers and supports individuals, teams, and organizations to explore challenges, gain insights, and take practical steps to achieve and sustain change. Joe is a coach and trusted advisor to senior partners at some of the world's biggest consulting firms and has worked with clients at the likes of Strategy and Beringa Partners and North Highland, to name but a few. We cover some really interesting topics in today's interview, including what coaching is, who should consider it, and why it's important for your career, the common challenges Joe finds her clients struggle with, and her advice on how to deal with them, and how you can tell a good coach from a bad one, and the questions you should ask when assessing whether a coach is right for you. Joe was a great guest and gave some fantastic insights into an area of the industry that many people have heard of, but very few have experienced themselves. If you are looking to take your career to the next level and want to understand more about how coaching can help you do this, then this interview is a must listen. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Joe Miles. Hi Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Nick. So it's it's great to have you on the show and it's one of the things I've been really keen to do as part of the podcast is get people who not only work in consulting, but work with consultants and help them with specific skill sets and certain things that maybe they need to improve to build towards the career they want. And so it's great to have you here on the show as a coach to the consulting industry. We'll dive into coaching and what that means and what you do during this interview. It'd be great to kick off for those people who maybe don't know you so well, with just a brief overview of your career and how you got to where you are today. Well, thank you so much, Nick. And I also wanted to initially just compliment you on your initiative of trying to bring voices into the consultant industry with a view to helping consultants on their journey. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've really enjoyed listening to you, to your podcast today. And for those people who aren't familiar with me, which is probably the vast majority of your listeners, because I'm not a household name in the way that some of your client interview um, organizations may be, I worked myself as a management consultant for 12 years, and I worked for a variety of different consultancy firms, which we can talk about if that's important for you. And after that time, I felt I, well, towards the end of that time, I felt I wanted to build an ongoing relationship with the consulting industry that was about really helping make the best of our potential as consultants. And I felt, having specialised latterly in organisation change leadership and having worked in-house for a while at the BBC where I started to learn coaching skills, I felt when I was at the Booz Allen Hamilton and I was working in this incredible environment with incredible people, that if I could do something that would help people continue on that trajectory of growth, then that would be, for me, the most engaging way I could be a part of the consulting industry. So I founded my company, Master Your Transition, in 2009, through which I offer coaching and consulting services. Fantastic. Thank you for that very succinct uh, intro that we will delve into uh, in depth throughout today. And I, th I actually wanted to start We'll come on to what coaching is. It'd be great just to understand how you got into it. So something that a lot of my 
uh, or not a lot, but a number of my uh, listeners like to understand is how people made that move into running their own business. And the path to independent consultant, like what I do, is, is quite well-trodden. You, you go from a firm into, in, into a client. The path to becoming a, a coach is not, not so common. So I'd be really interested how you actually moved into that space. Thank you. I guess with hindsight, any of our paths can sound very linear and logical and like it was somehow preordained. Okay. Yeah. Let me rewind quite a long way. I did a psychology degree at university, at the University of Birmingham, and I absolutely loved that. For me, it was all about what makes people tick? How can I understand more about that and study that? When it came to becoming a psychologist, at that time, psychology was really focused on people perhaps in a clinical setting or in an educational setting or occupational setting. And I wanted to work with people who are more working well, high functioning, as opposed to perhaps at the more extreme end of society where people are in extreme difficulty in some way, be with a kind of criminology aspect, be that with very strong emotional anxiety, depression aspect to that, or be that learning difficulties. So I felt that for me, consulting offered me an incredible opportunity to make a difference to people, their teams, their organizations through a different way of engaging with their ways of working, the technology that they're using of the day, their culture, their values. And through consulting, I was afforded great opportunity to work with different clients at and through and also myself work for different consultancy firms that meant that you really start to if you like understand even more what helps people be successful in a working environment that context that we're afforded of you know different clients different challenges is so valuable for our learning about ourselves about organizations how they work and for me it was the people aspect that I was always really drawn to so I started off, for example, in a small technology-led management consultancy firm based on SAP change. What I loved about the rollout of my first ever SAP SAP, implementation was actually... That's not something people say that often, I imagine, either. (laughs) (laughs) What I liked, though, it was communication. It was engaging with people. It was actually helping people's lives be better on account of using this technology in a way that would foster the business benefit as well. It made it real for them. And that's what I got curious about. So when this small management consultancy was bought by Logica and I found myself in a really techie environment, I felt, hmm, I'm not sure I'm as best aligned in this environment as I could be because I felt this sense of, I like the people engagement side of it as opposed to be talking in deep technology all the time. So I joined Anderson Business Consulting and in particular, the organization change people side of that. And then, Nick, it was just the most phenomenal opportunity to really get deeper into people, change, organization. I went in-house for a while at the BBC following the whole Enron crisis, actually, which was such a shame because Anderson Business Consulting was the most dynamic organization with incredibly bright people and very colorful culture, very diverse, very ahead of its time. I mean, you could even look back and call it quite millennial because... We had like, you know, pick a mix. We had fish tanks. We had, you know, um, uplighting on floors. And, and uh, you know, this is back in like the early 2000s, right? And the way we engaged with clients was just very dynamic and exciting. And we went from, gosh, 900-ish 
consultants to less than 200. And then finally merged with Deloitte Management Solutions, as it was at the time. And the culture change, Nick, felt so different. that, And the purpose of the work felt very different. And I went I decided to go in-house at the BBC and what that was phenomenal for was if you like to get that follow through of, well, what happens after we leave as consultants? What is that lasting impact on people and organizations and culture, ways of working? And when I was working there, I was afforded an incredible opportunity working with the finance director of the BBC on a huge value for money program, also not very popular, but was kind of incredible for helping draft speeches with her, shape the program with her. And ultimately, we recruited in a lot of consultants to support ourselves, a team of over 100 people eventually at one point. And from being on that side of it and being a leader in that organization, I was given the opportunity to go on a leadership program with Ashridge Business School. And as part of that, I was given a coach. And they're sitting there going, wow. I love what you're doing and I'd like to know more about this. And happily, because of all the cuss cussing we were making, they decided that more coaching needed to come internal into the BBC, which at the time had 26,000 employees. So internal coaching can work very well when you've got a large organization and the, the likelihood of coach and client, if you like, bumping into each other and the canteen is low. Um, it can be, can be great. And I applied and joined the BBC's internal coaching um, faculty. It was a really rigorous interview process, and I was really shocked, Nick. I just thought, oh, I'm a consultant, and, you know, I've got good skills, and this should be really easy, and it was hard. And they then, having got through this interview process, I had to read a book, which is for many a foundational text in coaching, called Coaching for Performance by Sir John Whitmore. And having read that book, I was finally allowed on the training program to become a coach. So this is sort of back in probably, gosh, 2004 at this point. Having then done three or six months probation, I so three months, if you like, testing with people, then another three months of being supervised and having pe- people come to me for coaching. I was then allowed to become a fully fledged coach inside the BBC and have people from the Ashridge Leadership Program be coached by me. And that, if you like, started my formal coaching skill. But Nick, before that time, I would have probably told you that I was quite a good coach. <laughs> told you that I knew quite a lot about it. And I think with hindsight, hindsight's very powerful, that was not really the case. There's a lot of skill and a way of being, a stance as a coach that I wasn't aware of that I've been trying to develop ever since. And I went from the BBC into Booz Allen Hamilton and was in their organization change leadership team there, which was incredible as well. An amazing experience as a consultant. And at that time, I started to introduce coaching into Booz, as we affectionately called it. I wrote a training program on coaching. I would coach my team should they choose to be coached. I very invariable with coaching. And even some of the partners informally and some of my clients. So we started having that language of coaching and I became slightly known for that. I also did a postgraduate certificate at that time to formalize some of the training I'd had in, in the BBC, which whilst recognized in that context, I wondered, would it be as well recognized in the wider context? And actually, I think it is because it's known as having a great internal coaching. Plan. Yet strengthening that with a formal qualification was really helpful for me. And I guess 
if you like, I wasn't at this point consciously building, I'm going to become a coach one day, therefore I need this particular, I, I didn't have a particular goal, if you like, about what I was building towards other than building confidence. But then when I was in uh, booze for a couple of years and I had a child and I wanted a different way of engaging in consulting, I thought perhaps coaching might offer me a different work-life balance, but still meant I could stay engaged with really bright, intellectual, fast-thinking people that I just love working with. So my transition was probably over four years, if you like, in the sense of from first building, becoming an internal coach into going into booze, to working there, to then setting up my business. And um, More formally was in 2009. I was fortunate in that I was afforded a, an opportunity to do some formal coaching um, with a certain organization that was launched my entire business. Fantastic. And the, there's two bits I do I want to come back to. And I'll, I'll say this right up front because I, I have an awful habit of taking my guests somewhere else and we get going on a really interesting topic and time, time gets away from us. But there's the work-life balance point and the coaching skills point I, I want to come back to. But I, I'm conscious that we we obviously know what we mean by coaching and we've spoken before this and have a good handle on what it is you do in terms of coaching. I think it would be really good actually for us to, just really for the, those listening, to give a bit more of a definition because coaching is a term that you hear in sports, in business. There's a whole different range of coaches. What to, What is coaching to you? That's such a phenomenal question. Coaching does indeed mean very different things in different contexts and also to different individuals. And even if you put coaches in the room, paid people who work as coaches in different contexts, they will also give you a different definition of what it means to them. So for me, coaching is, and I'm going to borrow some words from a lady called Tatiana Bachkikova, who I massively admire, who's a very powerful figure in the coaching world. And she describes coaching as an individualized process of facilitating change in people with a focus on specific targets and or of enriching lives. And that picks up for me the essence of coaching, which is about it being a very powerful vehicle of self-discovery and learning. You can talk about a goal of coaching being about raising somebody's self-awareness. And the point of doing that is to give somebody increased choice about how is it that they're behaving in the world? How is it that they're showing up? Are they making choices that are enabling them to have the impact they want to have or are they not? With that awareness and choice, if you like, you're also raising responsibility in someone to say, oh, okay, so I choose that or I choose something different. So it's very much for me a process of supporting someone to grow, to learn. And I see it as a partnership of equals as opposed to it being I'm the teacher and somebody's a pupil, which sets up a very different dynamic of expert and novice. Whereas I believe most people with the right facilitated support are the experts on themselves and can go a phenomenal way in developing themselves with the right support and guidance, like I say. Going alone with that can be really hard. Even as a coach, coaching myself, I find challenging, more challenging than I'd probably like to admit to you. <laughs> 
But um, at the same time, that's real. So I think many of us at times in our life could just benefit from having that additional support to help accelerate our development. Mm. I think it would really help me and I'm sure it would help those listening around that point of understanding where it can help you. Again, you highlighted around giving people more self-awareness. What are the key areas that you find people need more self-awareness in? What are those big challenges or blind spots clients often come to you with? That's a fantastic question and a huge question. So every client is very unique. And when I say client, my clients tend to be organizations, Nick. And then in some organizations, they will have a conversation with coaching or sorry, with their consultants to say, okay, how's it going? What's happening for you? And they will then share with me some challenges for this particular consultant or opportunities. So coaching isn't about someone having a problem or being in deficit. It's saying, you know what? I'm doing really well in my development. And what I'm noticing is that in the pattern of my feedback from the last two or three years, I've been told that I'm not showing up with as much and gravitas as I could, or as when I hit director or partner, that would be good to have. So I actually have come to a moment in my career where the time feels right for me to look at this more deeply. I've worked on it. These are the things I've done. Um, this has had this kind of benefit or impact, they might tell me. And then they will say, all right, so how do I take this to the next level? So things like confidence means, again, so many different things. Underneath having more confidence, well, what is that really about? So I would be working with someone to understand what does confidence mean to them? As I really believe we all have our own unique dictionary of meaning around the words that we use. People might say confidence and gravitas. What they really mean is walking into a room and in the first five seconds, creating an impression. For other people, it's about holding their ground when challenged by senior partners or by client senior stakeholders. For other people, confidence is about having a strong voice on what it is I want to do as a consultant. So rather than going on this client site because a partner asked me to, I want to have the confidence to say that's not actually the work I want to do. I want to focus on this particular type of project or in this particular type of industry sector. So that's another way that confidence manifests. And in another huge way that might surprise you is that many, many consultants are driven hugely by wanting to make a positive difference to people. And being inside a, a high-performance high culture with high expectations from this organizational system, but also from ourselves, and with a lot of change, and with a desire to grow fast, actually, there can also be confidence that's about internal confidence. How can I believe in myself more? That might be that they're getting feedback from others to say, hey, you're really good, and they're not quite believing in it. You hear about the imposter syndrome, so people being promoted and then kind of going, oh, yikes, I wasn't I was just doing everything I needed to do to get promoted. Now that I'm here, am I really worthy of being at this level? So that's another way confidence can manifest. And if you go even deeper with that, actually, the inner critic, a huge area for coaching. You might label that self-sabotage, that we all have ways of speaking inside our heads to ourselves, which can be motivating. Come on, Nick, you know, Let's get on. Let's do this. Right. What's on our to do list today through to, oh, well, 
why didn't you get all that done in the time required? What's the matter with you? And haven't you got the knowledge and skill you need? Or maybe you're not just cut out for this. And sometimes these inner critic voices inside ourselves can get some favorite narratives that we unintentionally find ourselves listening to, but that undermines our confidence. So sometimes confidence is about going much deeper into what is it in my deeper belief system, both positive beliefs and perhaps more challenging beliefs that may be helping or hindering me show up in the way I want to show up in my consulting role. And you started there by saying it's a huge question. And I think you've just shown very well why we will. I think we'll come back to that one a few times because I I'm keen to dig into a few more topics like that. And obviously, like you highlight the the depth at which people start. And then sort of when you dig down is by in part the, the value that a coach adds. And I think it's it's something actually that I'm sure others are, are asking because sometimes, uh, to your point around consultants wanting to make a difference, there is also an element that consultants in part of the role have to be confident and, and have to seem like they know what they're talking about. And very often people don't want to ask for help. Mm. And I think you made the point earlier around it's much easier to be coached by someone else than it is to coach yourself. And even for yourself as a, a, a experienced coach, been doing this for a long time, you, you find it hard to coach yourself. What, why is that? And, and what is the benefit that, that having that coaching process gives you? Yeah, the, let's take asking for help. In many cultures, um, consulting cultures where I work, where there's an up or out culture, mm. asking for help, Nick, is really, really tough. It's like saying, I've got a problem or there's something wrong with me. And in those contexts, it can feel risky because if there's something wrong with me, I might be at risk from not making the next up in my, if you like, inter-level, my full consulting level, let's say a jump from. So, Asking for help in that culture can feel really hard. Having said that, what people have started to see now is that actually if we're proactive about being aware of what our challenges are and able to show we've got ownership for that and we're doing something about it, that can actually really be seen as a strength by people around you. And if they're giving you feedback and you're like, yeah, and this is what I'm doing already with that, or this is the path I'm on and that feedback really helps me fine-tune that path, thank you so much. That creates a really strong ground from which to grow. So then suddenly asking for help goes from being something quite threatening to something very, very empowering. In other consulting contexts I work in and other professional organizations I work in, there's a real, if you like, halo effect around coaching, which we also have to be a bit careful of, where coaching is seen as something that's only given to the very senior people, the absolute top performers. A lot of coaching I do in organization is for people who've been deemed to be high performing over a, a consistent period of time, actually. So that can mean that it's less about a help thing than saying, look, these are our best people. We really want to invest in them. How do we do that? So it's enough for others in that context who aren't on that program. Then it can feel challenging asking for coaching because it feels like I'm somehow not entitled to coaching, which is a different challenge. And then help focus me. What was the second part that would be most helpful to take on at this point? So one question I'd be really interested off the, the back of that, Joe, is, Obviously, you highlighted there around how 
there can be potential barriers in terms of people asking for help in, say, the firms where up or out's prevalent and how that in a number of firms, coaching now is, is seen more positively, which is great. I am quite interested, though, in that I think if you took sort of a straw poll across the industry and, and took it up to a generalities level, there is still a bit of a perception that, and it's a bit macho, but if I'm asking for help, I've got, you know, I can't handle my own problems and I... I should be able to handle my own problems. And that that element of coaching sort of similar to, has that almost implicit stigma, similar to seeing a psychiatrist. You know, oh, there's, there's something wrong with you or with me. I, I shouldn't have to do this. I guess, how do you help people get past that? Or, or what should people, what questions should people be asking themselves to, to really get over that on their own? So it's a really interesting point. And I think, if we rewind the clock, so coaching is a really young industry. It's probably really only, it's only really just calling itself an industry and a profession, actually. And some might even argue whether it is an industry or a profession, right? That's a whole nother debate. And when I first started out, it's quite interesting. Back in um, 2008, nine, when I wanted to, to launch my own coaching business, I really came across the stigma. So this is real in a sense of, oh, there's something wrong with me. If I have a coach, everyone will then know there's something wrong with me. This is a real concern for me. And in the context where I was working, I approached the people partner of the organization I was working with, which I named already, and said, I would really like to be a coach. And, and his response was, well, that's great. You know what? Um, we know your track record. We know your experience. We know you very well. We know how much credibility you have in in." coaching our people because you've been with our people, etc. And that was all very flattering. But then he said, so when we have got someone who may be on an out track, what we do is we hire a coach and we tell them these are the four things they need to work on so that they don't get fired, shall we say, to put it into slightly coarse language. And of course, that's not quite how he spoke. And that was the black, my black and white takeaway of it. And Nick, this alarmed me because Coaching only works if people want to be coached. So coaching, when it's been, if you like, I'm being threatened with keeping my job if I don't fix this, that builds a very different psychological contract for the coaching to take place inside of. That's one that for me, I was like, wow, that doesn't fit with who I am and the kind of coaching I do. The next issue I had with this was my challenge to him was, so, okay, how many people have you given one-to-one coaching to that you've chosen to support to leave the organization anyway. And the stats on that were fascinating. So one-to-one coaching, because it's one-to-one, is in its nature kind of expensive as an intervention for anybody compared to any model where, you know, 10 people go on the leadership program and you're perhaps paying for, if you're not paying by seat, if you're paying by, let's say, the, the facilitator. So it's expensive. You're investing in people in a mandatory way to do this or there's a big threat. You know, what results are you really seeing? And his response was, gosh, now we come to think of it, not that great. So where our conversation led to, I think it's a very interesting parallel to what happened in the industry more broadly, which was how about we invest in the best people? How about we make this non-mandatory and not necessarily problem-based? We did that by offering post-promotion coaching. So by default with the up or out model, it means that you're investing in the best people post-promotion. The 
engagement for this was very much written as you've been promoted, this is your new job title, perhaps there's some pay and rations that go with that. And on top of that, you have the opportunity to engage with a coach should you choose to. And it was really positioned as you're fortunate, we really recognize your talent and we want to keep on investing in you. And what that allowed, Nick, was that in that culture where it's quite hard, as you said, to have a problem, it is natural to have challenges associated with transition. So I've just been promoted. I knew what I was doing before very well. Now I'm expected to sell more work, lead larger teams, talk at conferences about my area of specialism. And suddenly what's exciting about being at that level can remain exciting because it doesn't tip into oh, yikes, how do I actually live up to that now that I'm here? And it provided a great way of smoothing and accelerating that transition for the individual, whilst also from an organizational perspective, seeing the performance increase as opposed to dip after promotion. Because often before that, there was so much effort in particularly in upper-out cultures to get promoted that almost the effort curve sometimes dropped off after promotion because they had invested so much into that side. But then it was almost a bit like, oh, no, I'm promoted. I can, if you like, be more consistent with what I'm doing as opposed to keep pushing for more performance right now. And what they found is that actually they had more successful transitions more often, so organizationally, as I said, and individually. And people felt really significantly more loyal and engaged with their work as a result of the organization making this available to them. And this became a program, Nick, that we founded in 2009 that's gone on for multiple, multiple years, every six months subsequently, you know, and it's proven to be very popular because of its positioning as investing in the best. So I think that in that particular, let's just call it a microclimate, has really helped. But I've seen that type of shift happen for me with almost every client or organizational buyer that I meet now. And I think buyers of, cons- of coaching have become much more sophisticated in the same way that buyers of consulting have become more sophisticated. And where back in you know, 2009, I might be meeting, meeting HR directors who were just learning about coaching. Now I'm meeting HR directors, oftentimes who have their own coaching qualifications, who offer a certain amount of coaching themselves inside organizations and then looking for external support to, if you like, bolster their faculty to do that. So it's a shifting playing field. And I think the stigma that you described might still exist in some more slow moving cultures, possibly. But it's definitely been a huge shift in the consulting industry. And so much so that some of the big four have their own internal coaching services now as well. You've seen a huge rise of that, where there's the scale of the organization to do that. It's it's a great thing. I'm curious on that specific program. And Stop me if you you know you can't talk more more widely around this. And actually, you mentioned there the coaching was post promotion and was an option people got. So I got that sense. It's it, it's entirely voluntary. Are there from your side as a coach, were there any common traits or characteristics in the people who actually took up that coaching versus those who decided not to? Mm, really interesting. I think each person I meet in coaching is so unique and different. It's just fascinating. And I guess that's partly what keeps me so engaged with coaching. It's like it's, you're never quite sure who you're going to meet and how they're going to be. And it's just fascinating every time. And in the early days, I, one person really stood out for me who was 
slightly of a, I don't know, I don't like putting people into kind of molds or boxes, actually. That doesn't work for me. But I think this particular individual was very, very strong intellectually, had been best in class at, you know, Harvard, NCAD, uh environments with, you know, their undergraduates, MBAs and so on. And their attitude was, so look, I've been a top performer. I've been promoted early every time in a really tough context. I mean, I'm pretty exceptional. And what can you do for me? That was kind of, <laughs> kind of fascinating. And obviously it gave us a very, we can start right there with that, right? So what, how are you making sense of yourself? What happens when you find yourself alongside many other individuals who have a similar trajectory for you? How do you still find confidence, strength, distinction, and so on? And it sounded, it, I don't think intended it sound quite arrogant necessarily or anything like that. It was more just that their stance was, I'm really well put together. Like, how can you help me in the nicest possible way? And we had a very, very rich learning journey around developing self-awareness, around understanding the impact they might be creating on others from being quite so put together and so confident in their way of being. That was hugely helpful for that individual. And I guess that's sort of one angle. Other people sometimes come to me in a difficult place where perhaps they're feeling pressure to be promoted. Perhaps they're not quite sure what they want to be famous for yet. They're hearing the messages of what they need to be or should be in order to fit the successful consultant mold. And yet it might not feel like them. One thing that can happen in, in consulting over time is that we become very expert in being chameleon for our clients. So we have a solid set of consulting skills, be that from how to structure a project, how to analyze problems, how to develop uh, plans, to galvanize a team, to come up with interesting solutions to those problems, to developing new technology and so on. So we take all this incredible skill set into each and every client that we go to. And yet, because each client's so different and requires slightly different aspect of that, we become expert at being a bit like a kaleidoscope of bringing forward from our skill set the right aspects that fit for them. And over time, it can almost feel like I'm so good at like being a chameleon for my different clients. I've almost lost a sense of who exactly I am. And it's not about not knowing ourselves or knowing we've got strong skills. It's more like, well, what is my unique contribution and what differentiates me and how do I find my own voice inside of this noise of what I need to be so that I can show up with the authenticity that I want to in a market that, I, that means something to me with a specialism that's what I want it to be, not what I thought was somehow the most exciting when I first started consulting and I somehow got stuck in or in here because I like the partner but now that partner's moved on actually I've also got broader interests now and I want to do something different so sometimes people come in more of a place of inquiry of well who do I want to be as a consultant what do I want to bring and sometimes that comes from a place of strength that question can also come from a place of confusion and feeling disheartened and I might have been in the consultant industry by now for let's say eight or nine years where am I really going not really sure if I really want to commit to this industry or not. So that can be another question that, that well, or rather not question so much as a stance through which that question is approached. So it can be incredibly different for different people. As in men taking you up on coaching? I have coached more men than women in my history because I think of, if you like, at senior levels in particular, you tend to evolve, historically, sadly, have seen 
um, the numbers where they start off very 50-50 in consulting of, of men to women, we can see a drop off, um, although I'm, I'm seeing a turn in that, which is great to see. Um, it has meant I probably coach more men than women, which is interesting so far. And as I said, hopefully we'll continue to be, become more balanced as people continue to grow in a senior way in as females in consulting. And yeah, so I suppose you've got all those aspects of difference that come through as well. But really, Nick, what I'm looking at is how can I best help someone in light of their personal and organizational goals? And sometimes we can start off having a conversation about one thing like senior presence, or it could even be handling confrontation or being less confrontational myself. It's about really kind of getting underneath the skin of what that means for someone. And there can be layers to a coaching agenda where it sounds very beautifully mapped out in the initial brief I've been given. And yet when you start talking about it, it comes to life in a slightly different way. And then as the coaching journey unfolds, and it really is a journey, and I know journey can be quite a well-used phrase, but it is there's a kind of a horizontal and a vertical learning that happened that means through exploring one topic, people gain deeper self-awareness about who they are, how they are in their way of being. And then as you go into the next meeting, they're taking that with them. And then topic might be slightly different. There might be, um, I've got a client workshop coming up. I really want to make sure I engage all the, the different audience members in a meaningful way. I want to focus on that today. And you go, okay. And then you, you'll, you'll be, if you like, that's the what of what you're exploring. But then self-reflective elements that come into that and the learning from the previous one give a, give a learning that's about the person. So, so there's a horizontal learning about, you know, the what, the content sometimes, or the challenge or the opportunity that that person's exploring. But there's a deeper level of learning that's also going on at, in parallel. And then what can happen over, let's say, by meeting three, four, or five, is that actually the agenda's gone more into that person and how they're bringing at this moment. And as I said, what in their thinking pattern might be helping or hindering them, or what in their way of somatically holding themselves is getting in the way or helping them that either we want to do more of or we want to do less of depending on their particular goals really useful summary and i'm going to ask this and i fully appreciate if the answer is everyone's different because i do i get the sense from you that that's a large part of coaching that it, it's a lot about the individual and their journey i would be keen though to find out to your point around you coach primarily senior people in consulting, you've coached a mix of men and women, and like you said, social classes, race, all, all different elements of diversity and dynamics. I'd be really interested if when you do break down, you get below the, the sort of confidence level or that, when, when you do sort of start to peel away that onion, if there are any common challenges that are grade dependent, or if actually that's just not possible because there's so many different people at different grades. I really appreciate where you're coming from with your question. It's about really trying to understand like four different grades, what might be some of those challenges. So your listeners, if you like, can make sense of some of that for themselves. So let me, let me experiment with trying to meet that. I would say at the transition point of say, perhaps manager to senior manager, that could be called different things in different organizations. It, it becomes a really big theme of learning around how do I, if you like, re-identify myself from being content expert, really across the detail, really caring about quality, actually, because most consultants care hugely about the quality of their work and doing a good job for people, and it's, this is massive, to being able to trust 
and empower my team to deliver the deliverables for me to the standard that I really want. So working through others to deliver enduring results for clients or delivering excellence, whatever you might want to call that, becomes quite hard because in a way that transition point is about stepping back, understanding the motivations of different team members, then trying to, if you like, organize the work in a way that's exciting and motivating for the team in service of the client. And then being, well, if you like, adopting a different role of being a quality assurance point or a shaper up front of what the work might look like, but it not being your own end to end. So people find it really hard sometimes in that initial transition to not say, well, let's say there's a review of a deliverable that they perhaps help shape what the storyboard for that needed to look like. And they're perhaps giving some key insights around content that needs to go in different sections of this deliverable. The deliverable comes back and it looks and feels nothing like their way of communicating that their expectations for that piece of work. So the temptation can be, well, it's quicker and easier and I'll get the quality I want if I do this myself. Yeah. So oftentimes... People step in and make those changes, send it back to the consultant who was working on it for them. And it's, if you like, got the equivalent of being covered in red pen. And the consultant at the receiving end goes, wow, well, that's great because I can really see what this needs to look and feel like. That's excellent. We've got a great result. But on the other hand, I feel really demotivated now. I feel like I haven't had the opportunity to learn or I maybe feel micromanaged could be saying that they might feed back. And again, it'll be different for different people at certain points in our career. And if time's really pressed and let's say we weren't as expert as we could have been in that particular assignment, we might really value that. At another point in our career, if we're trying to get promoted, we feel like we have got really strong content knowledge and can shape these deliverables ourselves to the standard required. It can feel quite undermining for people. So working with that transition point, for people to feel confident in stepping back, empowering others, working out how do you do that? How do I Space for others. How do I stay across things to a good enough level so that I still feel confident and I can still ask, well, be, well sort of the partner can ask me questions, today answers that make it look like I'm in control. So control, trust, empowerment, stepping back from quality, I'd say, is a huge in that transition space. At the more senior level, so if we were taking your director to partner transition, it's a really fascinating transition point because it suddenly becomes. There's no rule book anymore. And well, there are in a, at a high level, but where, let's say at the analyst consultant grade, there's very tight competency frameworks that show you what to do and how to do it. And there might be a very strong knowledge bank that you can draw on for examples of how to do some of these things. If you like, there's a lot of scaffolding around you at those earlier grades that really facilitate your learning and uphold your professionalism. A partner but transition, it suddenly becomes, okay, so it's over to you. How are you going to shape a market? How are you going to bring offerings to our clients in a way that engages them? And, ooh, what are those offerings that are going to differentiate us from other consultancy firms or agencies, etc.? And actually suddenly having gone from a lot of structure, this is what I need to do, this is how I need to be, to it having so much more license is incredible. And most people feel very excited about that and feel liberated by that. And at the same time, quite daunted. Because even if they know by that point that phrase of what do I want to be famous for, becoming famous is hard. 
And actually, at this point, it becomes about how can I be confident being seen for who I truly am and for what I truly bring to the consulting market in a way that's not either apologizing through small giveaways in my language. So weak speak, something I might talk about or how they might be showing up in their way of holding themselves in the room, the way that they might speak tone of voice, quality of voice around different audience groupings, because most of the time we're, we're more afraid of being seen as successful than we are of our actual fear of failure. And that being seen as successful coupled with a fear of failure that also drives many people is a really interesting transition point for people. Because on the one side of, let's say, the mountain edge, if you like, there's, I'm going to be really successful and make it the top. Great. I can't oh, hang on, well, what will other people make of me if I'm that successful? Will it set me apart from my team? Will I no longer be one of the, the gang? Will I be judged badly? Might I be judged the way that I might have judged partners of old or I might have heard others speak quietly about partners of old and might I never know about that? So that can be interesting, if you like, on the one hand. And on the other hand can be a fear that perhaps I'm without all the support around me to make sales and so on, that... I can't go this alone. And I think there is this sense sometimes for some people about it being a solo trip, whereas actually I think most people say as a partnership, the beauty of it is that it's much more of a connected journey than people might first imagine in their mind's eye. But it's finding, you know, what does that path look like to partner? And how do I authentically walk that path in a way that's on the right trajectory for me is really fascinating and a big, a big moment. And often comes at a time when there are less peer supports in the sense of everyone's so busy doing their own thing. People exist to be supportive, of course, but it's the availability of that support can feel at times less accessible. That also means there's something about how do I be resilient en route? How do I reach the support? And how do I maintain being okay asking for help? Back to your point earlier about some people at partner point almost feel like they need to have everything so perfectly sewn up and be seen to have it all so nailed that what does that mean for asking for help? For what happens when I still find myself with a challenge and I find myself maybe lacking against one tiny element of being the best partner ever? And that can be yeah, isolating almost for people. Really useful, both guides. I think some some great points in there. I think the one that was new to me, and I'm sure will be for the for more junior listeners as well. Was your point around the the perception of success and the the impact there? So so really interesting sort of takes and areas people cha- are challenged with. I I guess I want to follow that up actually by from your perspective for those who you do coach, what is it that separates those who get the best results and I take best in in their personal context to the rest? What sets those people apart? It's a great question. I think what really separates success in coaching is people's ability to be open, really honest, and trust the person, the coach that they're working with. And that's why matching coach to client matters so much, actually. We talk about chemistry being right, but what chemistry really means is, do I have a felt sense of the competence of the coach to be able to support me to go where I need to go with my learning right now. We pick up that sense very quickly with people, and we, we use this language of, of chemistry. But it's really, can I feel safe so that I can be open? And can I make, do I, will I make sure that I speak honestly because I'm not feeling judged? 
So people who come in with an open mind, who are curious to learn, and if you like, have, if you like, validated their choice of coach to the point where they feel able to be open and honest and so on. That's when people get the most out of coaching. It's also when people are able to go to those slightly hard to look places. And you know what? We've all got things in ourselves that we'd probably rather not own. And sometimes in coaching, we hold a mirror up to those parts of people to help them see themselves more fully. Because what's seen by a coach is likely to be seen by others. So it offers a very rich parallel learning environment to, you know, what's going on in the coaching room is likely to be going on outside a coaching room. So let's work with it in a safe way that you can learn from that. So people who are open to challenge, open to feedback and having that mirror raised for them gain the most from coaching. Where it goes wrong is if people come into coaching with a misunderstanding of what it is. It's when people come into coaching feeling they should be coached but didn't really want to be coached. Uh, <laughs> that's not cool. Uh, also, it can go wrong if people are somehow fearing the judgment of the coach or somehow on the opposite side of that, trying to do things to please the coach. And it can be very flattering when people put you on some kind of pedestal and try and be this perfect coachee for you. But actually, as a coach, that's something we will have to monitor ourselves very, very carefully to make sure we're operating at that peer-to-peer level, which says, actually, we're here in partnership with each other. You're not here to do things or say or do things to please me. I'm here in service of you. I'm for you, your team, your organization right now. So yes, you're accountable, but you're accountable to yourself, your team, your organization, as much as you are to the commitment you've made to me to being in a true learning partnership. But that's different from that kind of parent-child, teacher-pupil, have I done my homework, yes, no, type dynamic, okay? So the point you've just hit on, though, feels, and tell me if it's not, but feels like a really interesting one around trying to sort of change the relationship from peers to teacher and child. What is it that coaches get wrong that, cause that dynamic shift to be fair if something like that happens it's normally in a very small time window and with antennae out any coach you're working with is likely to be looking out for that and is able to say hang on <laughs> as you say that to me xyz person what's going on for you i'm noticing as you're speaking that you've lost power you've lost ground your voice has shifted so i'm just curious for the sake of who are you saying what you're saying How is what you're saying serving your coaching agenda right now? And if that doesn't lead to a recognition of perhaps the shift in dynamic, I might even say, just like to pause for a second. I'm just really noticing right now that there feels like there's a dynamic shift right now and that in some way you're saying something to please me or to be a, you know, a good coachee. I'm not here for you to do that and I'll call it out like I have done to you. And then we would just regroup around, okay, so what would be the adult-to-adult answer you would give me to that question? Which in part draws upon a model of transactional analysis that some of your listeners might be familiar with from psychodynamic theory. And it's a very powerful model for helping level yourself inside a conversation. Although Tatiana Bachkikova, who I mentioned at the beginning of our interview, she would say that we live in multiple selves and with multiple narratives and personalities going on inside that. So, we, yeah. With every model, there's another model, right? But as consultants, we <laughs> have <laughs> Yeah, I completely agree. And I, it would be good to bring us on to actually that point around how to pick a coach. And I do very much want to come back to from an organisational perspective. But while we're on the thread of the individual, you mentioned around chemistry and that it's it's very much about developing a relationship. What is it that 
someone should think about or be asking themselves when looking for that coach? How do they select the coach that's right for them? There's perhaps some guidelines I would offer, mm. which are what's the background of your coach in a professional sense? And does for you that background mean there's a credibility there that's important for building trust and respect between you? And that'll be different for different people. I also would be really encouraging people to look for professional qualifications in coaching. It's very easy for people to go on a weekend course on coaching and then say, hey, you know what, I'm an hour coach. And there are probably some incredible people who start off in coaching that way and who are offering a good service from the get. However, I would be cautious about being too optimistic about that in a generic way. I think coaching competence does come with true focus on building a skill in coaching and with experience. So I would want to be seeing coaching qualifications from postgraduate certificate to a master's or a doctorate in coaching even. Or as a minimum, I'd want to be seeing that they went on an accredited coaching course with a professional coaching organization. And as I said, the, even to say professional is, is still quite new for the industry. But there are a number of coaching bodies and associations that I would look out for, such as the Association for Coaching or the ICF, International Coaching Federation, or the EMCC, through to APEC as a more nuanced one, that are all working to try and build best practice across the coaching industry. For a coach who's conscious of their ethics, okay, what you know, what is good coaching to them and how do they keep me, the client, potential client safe? What are their boundaries about where they will and won't coach? That's part of ethics. Well being of you know your personal well being maintained as part of ethics. Also part of their ongoing professional commitment, I would want to be saying, well, how committed are they to what we call continuing professional development? So there is a certain number of hours per year that coaches really should be investing in themselves in training programs or learning of some sort. So I'd want to be working with someone who's genuinely committed to being the best coach that they can be, wherever they are on the journey. And they don't have to be the world's most experienced coach for them to be a good fit for you. And if they're you know, learning and they're insightful and can offer you some interesting books to read from time to time or models to help make distinctions in your experience, then that can be incredibly powerful. So I think there are some kind of those hygienic factors, if you like, about background, about qualification, about level of skill, about ethical framework and kind of making sure you're safe. And I also believe there's a huge amount that's about the chemistry, as we mentioned before, feeling right. So I sat down very early on in the BBC days with an individual who was significantly older than me, probably 30 years older than me. And he looked at me and we had a conversation. He's like, wow, you're so engaging. You're so warm. And I really feel I could work with you, but I've got a real problem. You really remind me of my daughter. And it just was bizarre. And I don't know if I can decouple that. So with the greatest of respect, I just said to him, well, listen, you don't have to pick me. You can pick someone else. I'm not going to be offended. And I think it's probably more helpful for you to have a more clean experience if you're not being triggered by me or inversely calling into our coaching your daughter in some way. So that was an example where chemistry was inappropriate. Another time I had an inappropriate chemistry time was 
where there was just a dynamic where we walked in a room and we took an instant dislike to each other. I think that's happened to me once or possibly twice in, gosh, 14 years. But um, I, it was just a thing where I was like, wow, I don't really want to help you. And if I feel like that, I'm not the right coach. So I would always call that out. And as I said, it's been so infrequent. But equally, there is just that moment of I like, I don't like, and there's a felt sense that happens between two people in the dynamic. But, you know, trust your instincts with up to, but back it up with getting the right data. If you really like the look of a coach and it feels good and you feel you can open to them, just do your homework to make sure that they have the appropriate qualifications. In an organizational context, a lot of that work's been done for you because HR directors, as I said, are increasingly savvy about hiring coaches of very, very good caliber now. And well, I'd like to say always, but I don't know what went before. Very good caliber. And so I think in a way, then it might, you might have the opportunity. So sometimes I work with it, particularly at senior levels, they might meet one, two, if not three coaches to say who's the right one for them. Situations, I always say to the person, you know, go with the person that feels best for you because it's such an opportunity for, to learn and grow through coaching that you don't want to waste it and trust that you'll pick the right person at this time. And if you don't, you can always come back for coaching another time with a different person. But I think there's normally something that separates it for people. And I would think it comes down to trust, respect and rapport and that ability to feel met human to human at a level that feels right. For you and for me that's very much I talk a lot about partnership and for me it's very much in this adult to adult dynamic and I might offer people observations in a side of chemistry meeting so that they can help make sense of the kind of coach I am so I can what I'm noticing in this conversation is this this and this over and beyond what you're saying how does that land for you or I might contract first around giving that observation actually and we say would you like an observation then they say yes and off we go sorry <laughs> that's important and I try and give people an experience, if you like, from that first meeting of what it would be like to work with me to help inform choice. But not necessarily all coaches do that. Sometimes it can be more of a chemistry meeting, which is tell me about yourself. I'll tell you about myself and what do you want to get from coaching? And that's very important. And it's just a bit sometimes goes a little bit further into, well, these are the kind of questions I might ask you. These are the kind of observations I might make. It can bring it to life for people. Really useful. And I guess to that point around the coaching, you know, like you say, critical to have the right level of qualification from the right organisation, critical to have that rapport and that chemistry. How critical is the coach having a background in, the, in a similar industry or having been at a higher level than you in the industry? Do, do those things matter as much or are those sort of second order to coaching and chemistry? That's a really fascinating question because there are some coaches who come into the industry now who've been CEOs themselves but haven't necessarily got a depth of coaching expertise in the sense they've been busy being a CEO, right? So they haven't yeah. had that opportunity to have, you know, track record of 15 plus years of coaching, for example. Equally, on the other hand, you might have people with incredible coaching experience who haven't made it to CEO but had rich organizational experience in a different way. So some people come into coaching through an HR route. Some people come into coaching through consulting group having specialized in organization change leadership some people come into it because they really enjoyed managing big teams in industry and feel that they the best part of their job was developing their people so very many different career paths and ways into that and is one better than another well i think that's the credibility piece that's important i think you want to feel the coach you're working with can understand what's going on for you but actually i think in a way 
not having worked in the same industry as someone you could argue is useful because it means you're not biased towards what you're hearing being filtered through your own experience. So some people make an argument say it's really powerful to work with people outside of a profession that you've yourself grown up in. Others make an argument say, well, yes, but it's much better to have done the same profession because then you've got more credibility and you get people's problems more quickly. And to offer, if you like, a wide vantage point on the industry that can be very helpful for clients if when at the appropriate time should they require that. And so I think the kind of professional piece for me, you know, when I was in the BBC and I was coaching, I coached people from television presenters to lawyers to people from like finance function, but not when I was supporting the change in that function. And it, it never mattered, actually, I would say. Equally, I find the, the, the feedback I have from people that I coach in the consulting sector, and I do work in other sectors, but in the consulting sector is that Joe really got me because of her experience. And actually... Like they might think that, but it could be that I got them because I'm a coach. So, you know, it's hard to say what was because of what. So I wouldn't necessarily rule in or rule out anyone based on their professional background, but it's good to be aware of it and just see how it lands for you. Then the senior part of your question, you know, I, I regularly coach CEOs and partners and firms, and I wasn't at that level when I left consulting. And it has never mattered. It's been about having a partnership and a peer level relationship where I bring us a depth of coaching experience and their partners in their field and their experts in their field. And it's a meeting of experts, if you like, in our own respective ways. And with the respect there and the trust and really the engagement to learn and the, you know, the partner or the CEO taking responsibility for that learning, you know, that is afforded by that right chemistry up to point, but is also their own self-motivation there are some organizations some coaching organizations where they only hire people who are ex-CEOs to be coaches and I think there's a strength in that and I'd say there's a limitation in that there are other organizations where they only hire people with coaching experience of, of, of a significant depth you know but I think probably being part of an organization that does both would be a good thing right but uh, yeah so I wouldn't really make a discriminating factor either for or against seniority or professional background and though I'd want to know if I'm being coached who I'm in the room with and buy into that person yeah whatever makes sense for you to that point then because we've talked a lot around actually if I want to select a coach if I'm running a consulting firm and I don't have that HR director who is qualified or can can filter out a good coach from a bad coach what should I so if I'm running Sometimes helps me to give rough numbers. If this doesn't help you, don't worry. But if you know, if I'm running a firm of say twenty to fifty, and I don't have that HR director, what should I be looking for for my, I guess in effect, my organisation's coach? Again, I think when it comes to selecting a coach at an organisational level, I would be looking for a coach who understands our values as an organisation and what kind of organisation we we mean to be in our way of being as an organisation. I'd also be looking for a coach who can, if you like, partner and understand the vision of what we're trying to achieve, someone who gets that, who cares about that, actually. And I would be looking to hear war stories from that person about how they've supported similar firms at a similar growth point to achieve what, you know, me, the CEO, is looking to achieve, let's say. 
And I'd also be really looking for referrals, actually, from my peer group. Because I started a consultancy firm, let's say. It's likely that I came out of consulting myself and have still got peers in the field who might be at senior levels or had access to coaching. So I'd be really interested in their viewpoints and names from other people. And it's funny that, actually, I would say that, you know, for a lot of coaches and I would name myself included, most of my business has come from word of mouth. I've actually never gone to market. It's been extraordinary. And I think that happens for a lot of people because as people move around, it's like, well, I work with this person that worked for me, what do you think? And then you might be invited to meet somebody or an organization, new organization, and, and it goes from there. So I think referrals are always very powerful, as we know, in many different walks of life, from the to consulting assignments, you know, to, yeah, hiring a coach. And I think the other thing I would say is that I would be looking for someone who wants a longer term partnership as opposed to a transactional relationship. So with my clients, I've had multiple multi-year relationships. It's, it's, you know, upwards of three, four, five years with every client now. And I value that hugely because I think over time you, whilst maintaining as an external to the organizational system, you, I start to be able to bring some of that systemic perspective to you're being influenced by this way in this culture. Some of what, be, what can feel individual can be organizationally being shaped for the person. And I think that longer term partnership affords the coach the opportunity to bring that to you as an organization and to the individuals who are coached thanks to you offering that, that I think can be very enriching for, for all parties involved. Is there a size or scale of them at which coaching becomes more beneficial? So is it that coaching might, if you're a five-man firm, maybe, you should, maybe it's not right to invest in a, a coach for the organization, whereas maybe when you're a 10 or 20-man firm, it, it becomes much more relevant? Or is that an irrelevancy around engaging coaching in your organization? That's a very interesting point. And I think me, I would say it's about coaching readiness and about budget. So coaching, because it's one-to-one, does tend to be expensive. It's on the upper end anyway of, you know, any kind of personal development. So if you're a new startup, there's four or five of you and budgets are tight right now. Sometimes that might force the decision to put coaching into a year or two years further down the line's timeframe. On the other hand, I know people who are leaving organizations who are setting up on their own, who are really keen to engage now to help steer and shape them in a way that accelerates their development individually and as a team or as a new organization that can be very powerful if the funds are there. I would say typically, though, that there's probably a certain organizational mass of maybe, I don't know, 30, 40, where people start getting interested in putting more formalization around their L&D more generally, of which coaching might be an aspect. So learning and development could be on on the job learning to to taking perhaps a subscription to an online service of some sort to building a relationship with a couple of either independent trainers of some sort or to educational faculty of some sort. So at that time, and funny enough, I recently met an organization at that type of stage of their development as a, a management consultancy firm. And that's exactly where they're at. They're thinking, well, we just need to think about offering overall and whether we could put coaching inside of that and what level would be pitched it at and how would it be. And my encouragement there was everything I've said, plus there is also a readiness 
from the individual that needs to be there. So it's great to have that person you can call upon. And there does need to be a certain amount of self-awareness or experience that's been developed before perhaps you go into coaching. Because at the very early stage of our career, let's say as an analyst and a consultant, would I recommend coaching? Possibly for a few people, but at that point, it's more about skills accumulation and about knowledge accumulation and exposure to different client assignments and industries and specialisms that it's going to really help accelerate development to help people work out, well, what kind of consultant do I want to be? And, you know, that having that broad base as an analyst across a lot of different areas is incredible. And then people tend to kind of narrow and filter. So I think it's really at that point when people are in that process of, of narrowing and filtering to say, well, what do I want to bring to the consulting world and to this organization as my vehicle for doing that that's an opportune moment to think about coaching so i would say it's probably you know upwards of five years of consulting experience but i don't want that to sound like a limitation there are i have coached senior consultants who've been exceptional performers who just have certain things they wanted to work on and that's been just as valuable as important as coaching a partner so there's perhaps something about readiness budget and less about scale when it comes to when's a good moment to hire a coach. Brilliant. And yeah, I think really useful context for those who who are in that position. And it's very interesting to hear, as you say, it's, it is about the firm being ready and seeing it's, it's time for that as opposed to the, the scale of the firm or a hard and fast rule. Just one thing, and it's, it's a slight tangent, but you highlighted it there. So I'm I'm keen to see if there is anywhere, really, I think more that you'd point people to, but you made the point there and around coaching maybe not being right for more junior colleagues. For anyone who is listening, who maybe is in those more junior grades, and you mentioned there, obviously, at the lower, at the lower grades, get out there, get experience, and that's, that's what will help with your development. Do you tend to point people to a resource? Is there any, any toolkits that people can maybe look at? Or is that not so, so much an area that you focus on? It's more been an area, I suppose, that organisations haven't engaged me in as much. Having said that, I do offer group coaching with one organisation in particular where there are some analysts and consultants as part of a group environment for coaching that's been very successful. It's been about this high performer programme. And in that context, it hasn't been one-on-one, which I think, as I said, it can be a little bit, you know, at the right time, it's less, it's less age and stage for coaching than it is about a readiness for coaching. Now, for me, my observation would be that most people's appetite is for kind of skills accumulation, knowledge accumulation, and also mentoring. So give me advice and tips. I just don't know how to approach this. I want to know. I want, like, expertise, right, as opposed to being asked lots of questions, which sometimes can feel very frustrating for analysts. And when analysts are coached by internal parties like a career counselor or something sometimes the career counselors i work with might say you know inside consultancy organizations might say oh but this analyst got really annoyed with this coaching approach and what should i do then and in which case often the advice is will take the coaching hat off and put on a different aspect of your managerial you know repertoire and perhaps offer some advice or offer some mentoring but then help them make sense of it for themselves using some coaching skills by asking questions like well what do you think about that or what could work from you inside all of those ideas or what other ideas does that stimulate for you etc so that it, if you like the ownership for what someone does as a result of an interaction with you is maintained by them so in terms of development and where to go at that age and stage in the consulting career 
I really think reaching into your peer network is phenomenal. So each other, there's so much to learn about from talking in conversation with each other. And so many people experience the same challenges as you, you know, sharing that, airing that, so validating for other people. And that's one of the things we notice in this group coaching setting is that it's like, wow, I thought I was the only one who felt internally that I'm not quite as good as I should be to be a consultant or I'm the only one internally who struggles to speak up in a senior forum or I'm the only one that doesn't really know what they want to specialize in. And we've explored that in this group setting. And as I said, it's just been there's been so much sort of learning from each person listening, even if it wasn't them speaking because of them facing very similar challenges. So I think talking to your peers, whether that's in an informal way or even in a group coaching way, can be phenomenal. Using your mentors and your career counsellors is great. And choosing informal mentors too from, let's say there was a project you worked on and you had a great relationship with somebody else who might have more or even less experience than you. That can be really powerful for your learning, asking for feedback, saying to that person, hey, I'm working on this right now. So in the context of this client role, I'd really value it if you could help keep me honest with myself about how I'm doing around that. Like, you know, am I speaking up in meetings or am I still not making impact or am I still waffling? Or am I still using weak speak instead of speaking consensually? Whatever it might be. Can I just jump in there? Because you mentioned it before and I do just want to find out actually, what does weak speak mean? I love the phrase, I can guess, but I want to find out what it does mean. Well, weak speak to me means making um noises or uh or minimizing what we say by saying uh just an idea or oh well you might make a comment that's a really interesting comment and go oh well i haven't really researched that Mm. but you minimize and take that away or you might say but you might have a different idea that can be said in a way that invites a different idea or can be said in a way that sounds like my idea is only an idea and it's you know okay if you want to throw it away and we often find an email to be say, just a quick note to say. Yeah, I'm very guilty of that. And there's a certain cultural piece to that, right? We don't want to take up people's time. We want to be polite. And I say to people, if you want to say something, say it. If you want to write an email, own it. Brilliant. And it follows on from that question, but but is much broader. And regular listeners to the show now, I, I love books and I, I love getting book recommendations from my guests. And I'm going to make a huge assumption that you recommend books and actually I'd be I'd love to hear if you don't I'd be really interested to find out what books you find yourself recommending to your clients most often that's, that's a huge question because I read so much I'm studying now for a doctorate in coaching and so I read a lot of textbooks Nick which I try not to recommend to people but <laughs> so interesting that I'm like wow have you written them like no not my audience right (laughs) but I've heard on some of your other podcasts people recommend books like Stephen Covey's Seven Habits or The Chimp Paradox for example by Stephen Peters and I think those are some really interesting books um Peterson's Disciplines those ones often come up in a consulting context to complement those if you're into understanding more about your, let's say, your reactions, your fight, flight, freeze, disassociate reactions reactions to stress, something like Triggers by Marshall Goldsmith can be interesting because it can help you make sense of, all right, I might have learned from this book, what is it for me that manifests when I'm stressed? So I want to run away or I get angry or I want to just be disassociated from the whole thing and just sort of change the subject or something or walk out. 
if you want to understand, well, what are those things? So you're pre-warned. So if you like, you can intervene before the stimulus happening to your automatic conditioning coming through that takes you into that stress pattern. Reading that book can be quite powerful for self-reflection on, well, as I said, forearmed is forewarned. So if I know what triggers me, I can either try and do something to avoid those triggers, or if I know I'm going to meet one of those triggers in my day to day, I can prepare myself to react differently. And learning to really react under pressure, I think, is a really important thing for leaders and is a huge part of the coaching agenda in a world that's increasingly complex and uncertain. So I'm also very curious about the extent to which some of our patterns become automatic in us. So there's a book called Intelligence in the Flesh by Guy Claxton, who is an educationalist and speaks in a really interesting way about how some of our intelligence and ways of being becomes embodied. And for me, the embodiment of our patterns is a huge area of interest and for me often unlocks deep, long-lasting change because insight alone is not enough. I work with some incredibly bright people and it doesn't take a long time to raise self-awareness. But having awareness and insight isn't the same as doing something about it. We need to be working in practices to actually do something differently. And there's another book called Act Like a Leader, Think Like a Leader by a lady called Herminia Abara, who's a Harvard professor who, at the beginning of the book, you could say slightly disses the coaching industry by saying, hey, there's a whole industry out there about raising your self-awareness and understanding your values, okay? And she's a little bit disparaging of that. But actually, I recommend this book because what she's really saying is, once you know all that, that's great because it gives you self-insight and it means it affords you the opportunity to align at a much deeper level to your potential, your competence and what you want to be in the world. But you only get there, not by just knowing about it from your values and your beliefs, but by doing something. So she really encourages, if you like, from insight, something called outside. And she talks about, you know, how do you develop an act in a way that means, as Aristotle would say, you are what you practice. So you become the leader you want to be which is, to a certain extent, a little bit akin to what Amy Cuddy would talk about in her book, Presence. And her TED Talk on power poses is one of the most watched in TED Talk land, if you like, but is also quite often misunderstood because, in a way, the sort of Daily Mail headline on it is, we may stand like a superwoman and, and then you will feel like a superwoman. It's like, <laughs> no. The physiolo- physiological shifts in our psychobiology that can be afforded opportunity to change by shifting our way of being physically, mentally, emotionally, kind of need to work together. So you can't only work with a body to create change, but neither can you only work with a mind. So there's something about bringing together mind sight, insight, outside with an embodied way of being that is really where Amy Cuddy is trying to go with what she's saying. But as I said, it's often like caricatured and so you've been Superman today, are you putting your feet on the desk in a high power way? And I think that loses some of the incredible impact of what sits underneath if you hear that message can have. Yeah. So those are some of my books, but there's so many more. Like my whole bookshelf, I can show you like a packed. <laughs> those are some fantastic recommendations. And I, I always like it when I get new recommendations that, like you say, either previous guests haven't mentioned or are completely new to me and I'm sure will be completely new to others. And especially in a field like this, it's great to 
get the insights from someone like yourself who has gone to the books that go a bit deeper into the theory. Some of these books can sometimes be a bit too high level or designed more to get to the top of Amazon than they are to, to give you sort of really deep insights. So you, it's great to get your take on those ones that you find really important and have, have helped you. So I'll put all of those in the show notes as well. I'll be going through those myself on Amazon. If there's any others that spring to mind after the interview, let me know and we can, can put those in. And it sounds like you've listened to to one of these interviews before. So thank you very much for that, by the way. I, I love meeting people who listen to this show. And last question, which won't be a surprise to you then, I imagine. And this is something, again, I ask all of my guests, and I'll be very interested, just again, given your, your unique perspective on this, is you have three people in front of you and you can give one piece of advice to each. The, the first is someone just starting their career in consulting. The second is, I tend to say four to six years in, so given the people you work with, take it how you wish, but manager's probably the right, the right level to be looking at. And then there's an individual who is approaching partner. And the question is, what one piece of advice would you give to each one of those? Okay, gosh, so much. For somebody just starting in consulting, I would really encourage you to stay really open-minded and curious, to seize every opportunity to learn. And sometimes a role can at first seem like a dud role and there are certain associations with some roles more than others that kind of look more sassy or less sassy. And don't be sucked in by groupthink around that, right? Go into the role, really understand, well, why has this been scoped and what is the client really needing here? And go beyond that superficial, if you like, briefing document to have and understand your own perspective on how can I make a difference here? Because you always can in some way make a difference. There could be an element of innovation you bring to the way the project is being managed. There could be an, something that's going on in the client that other people have been too busy to kind of pay attention to that could change the scope and the shift it in a way that's more outcome focused for the client and that helps bring your deliverable to life in a way that means it lives on beyond the scope of your assignment. Now, I've had analysts have come up with some incredible tools for like widgets on Excel to, to widgets that make PowerPoint work more effectively through to actually in one organization I worked with, there was a consultant level individual ended up shaping an entire service line around customer experience because of the work they'd done in a very big retailer that was just so captivating for that retailer that it became this huge proposition. So something that can just seem like a little bit trivial or at the bottom of the food chain isn't necessarily. And I think just Keep really open. And if you find your energy is somehow low, try and find something that makes your energy high. Because our energy follows attention and what we put our attention on grows. And the more that you can find the positive things, the more that you're going to have a positive experience in consulting. And people's journeys in consulting can look and feel pretty different. I and mean, you can call that luck of a draw with the partners you might work for or the industry you happen to be aligned to suddenly having a, a big surge or a big decline that can impact your trajectory and in, in your experience. But inside all of that, there's still opportunity for you to learn. And sometimes we can get fatigued by people saying, oh, you know, find the good and everything. But it, you have one life. And if you're finding it really not engaging, Use it. Use your time well to find something that does engage you, even if it's slightly to the edge of the official scope, you know. Yeah. But with right, with the right support around you from your seniors in doing so. Yeah. 
So that's my just starting. Brilliant. <laughs> that's okay. For someone four or five years in, I think now is the time to reflect and start saying, okay, I'm using my superpower of learning open-mindedness and I'm adding to that my power of reflection and saying, right, what do I want to bring? And what do I want the next four or five years to look like? Because time and consulting goes so fast. It's one project to the next. It's one big deliverable to another big deliverable to another big rollout. And before you know it, the years can zip by. Okay, So get conscious of what have been the projects that you've enjoyed the most and what specifically about those projects was it? Was it the content? Was it the team dynamic? Was it the size of team? Was it a lone role? Was it having a, a large management aspect to that? Was it the size of the client team? Was it the type of client that you interacted with? Was it the seniority of the client you interacted with? Okay, So get really, really conscious about what makes you tick inside consulting and align yourself as much as possible with the people in, in the organization you work for that make you feel your best self and with the clients that make you feel your best self and start really building a sense for you of permission to experiment with well if I was a partner one day what would I do it in and just play with that okay it's not a serious thing but just get curious and give yourself freedom to look beyond the scaffolding of what I should be as a consultant and tick those boxes of xyz competency to how do I put my spin on those competencies and bring something of me to that so that I can be really flourishing? Because the more that you're alive in your work and you love what you do, the more you're going to be successful anyway. So orientating around proper awareness of what works and what doesn't work for you, I think, is a powerful thing to do at four to five years in. Then partner was the third question, wasn't it? Yeah. Your approach I think at this point, know that you're not alone. People can start feeling like, they are more alone and they've got to go it alone and, and you're not. There's still huge support around you. There can be a sense that I should know everything and I should be the finished perfect article, but we never are. And that was really brought home to me when I finished my master's in coaching when the, <laughs> the lady who ran the program, giving the sign book, said, Joe, congratulations, you know, your mastery in coaching. Blah, blah, blah. And um, a book was called Mastery by a chap called George Leonard. And in this book, it talks about no matter how masterful you are, you're always on a learning path. So I would say to anyone approaching partner, you know, what is it that's your learning edge? What's going to keep you excited for the next one, five, ten years? And how can you approach your partnership in a way that is still in this learning growth mindset that can help, if you like, sort of motivate you at times when it feels tough and and also keep you excited and young and curious in mind in that sense. So I think where it goes wrong sometimes for people is if they start trying to be something that they're not because it's their desire of what a partner is as opposed to being partner-based as an authentic sense of self, being aligned with your values and your core beliefs and with the offer you want to make in the world. And as I said, there's also something about the more you allow your true authentic self in a partnership way to be seen, the more that you're actually giving permission for your team to embody and become their full potential as well. So you're role modeling a path of self-development that's so inspiring for so many people. So back yourself, support yourself and enjoy that journey and be conscious of that as you go forward and be conscious of how your voice gets louder, which can either be more supportive or more stinging as you achieve partner and be mindful 
of remembering what it felt like looking up to someone from partner. You know, what is the impact of, in fellowship that you want to be creating? And in a way, it becomes more about your how of how you're being that's important to be mindful of, as opposed to your knowledge is still incredible because you're, you're approaching that phase. You're going to have incredible content knowledge. You've got to stay sharp with that. But it's how do you make best advantage of that for your internal team as well as your clients so that the multifold, multifold impact that you're having is what you want it to be and your intention and your impact aren't out of alignment. Fantastic advice. I, I, I really like that point at the, the partnership level of actually doing this and in yourself inspires others to do it as well. And that point around understand your impact and remember the and be conscious, but be self-aware of that impact. So, mm. Fantastic. Joe, I've really enjoyed chatting. Thank you for, for making the time for this. I'm sure my listeners have. I know I've taken away a number of things to do. <laughs> Emails being the, the tiny tip of that iceberg. If someone's listened to this, if someone's listening now and they want to find out more about you or they're interested in speaking to you about coaching, be it on an individual level or an organizational level, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Well, I'd first of all say um, thank you for inviting me to share my perspective on coaching. And, and as I said, it's a huge field. So there's going to be a lot of perspective out there that would be interesting to, to also galvanize to support and challenge what I've said. For, for me, my website is a great go-to place, which is masteryourtransition.co.uk. I'm also on LinkedIn if you want to connect and hook up through that mechanism as well. That can be two really good ways of being in touch and also finding out more if you want to about what I do and compare and contrast that to what others do. Brilliant. Well, I will put links to both your website and your LinkedIn in the show notes so that if people listen to this, they can go straight there and find them. Uh, all that's left to say then, Joe, is, is thank you very much and all the best for the rest of your week. And, and thank you very much to you, Nick. Thank you for having me and all the very best with your ongoing podcast series as well. It's been really enriching and rewarding to listen and thank you for allowing me to be a part of that. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Joe. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.